Well, kia ora and uh, welcome to the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey with the Kaka's climate correspondent, Catherine Dyer. Catherine, lovely to see you. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you as well. Mm. So uh, Happy New Year is one way to describe it. It's certainly been a hot past year and looks like we're going to have another hot, maybe even hotter New Year. Could you tell us about uh, the wash-up from the data that came out at the end of calendar 2023? Because it was a doozy. Yeah, it was a doozy, and we'd sort of been hearing about it all the way along. But by the end of the year, um, you know, certainly the the data sets, um, one of them, Berkeley Earth, came at, came out at 1.54 degrees higher than the pre-industrial record. So, yeah, it was definitely... And it was, I think the interesting thing about it is that it was so much higher than what had been predicted by all of the experts and all of the data sets. So it was unexpectedly high. Mm. Do we have a sense um, from your reading and um, your sources included in the uh, email newsletter with this video about why, um, uh, aside from the climate uh, warming from... Uh, carbon dioxide and other warming gases. Why 2023 in particular was so warm? Well, they have had a look at all of the different things that contribute to increasing heat. So that obviously includes man-made global warming. So we know that that's trending along. Um, We had the transition from a La Nina to an El Nino late in the year, and it was an... Um, a very swift transition this time. We were at a solar maximum, so you get a bit of extra heat from the sun. Um, there was the Hunga Tonga volcanic eruption, um, and there was also the reduction in mar- marine fuel pollution. Um, so all of those things played a role. Um, but what we what what happens when you combine them all together and look at the expected effect from all of those things? It still doesn't explain just how hot. 2023 was um, and uh, so what we're left with is natural variation or um, James Hansen's explanation where he's claiming that his paper warming in the pipeline explains what happened in 2023 and it also predicts very high numbers for 2024 How high are we talking? Well um James Hansen is saying 1.6 to 1.7 degrees higher than uh, the pre-industrial period in 2024. Most of the models, um, the big data sets, they're predicting a temperature increase that's uh, pretty similar to 2023, maybe a a nudge higher, but around the 1.4 to 1.5. So it will be interesting to see how it you know, how it pans out in comparison to those predictions. Um, but that said, the the major global, the major data sets, their predictions for 2023 were well wrong. Um, and so there's a bit of caution applied to, you know, how they turn out um, next year. So when year. we say well, well wrong, we mean well low. They were well low, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard to predict or measure tipping points, um, and they're not included in the official modelling, the sorts of things that we see out of the IPCC report and that various people are relying on when they talk about the Paris agreements and the likes. But um, uh, tipping points, uh, is anyone talking at the moment that, you know, maybe we've gone through 
one or more and they're starting to, to mount up. Where, where are we on the tipping point story? Yeah, it's there is some suspicion from people who, particularly the Antarctic researchers, who, people who research the cryosphere, that there's a possibility that something has happened in the Antarctic that might later be identified as a tipping point, but it's very hard to tell until you've got um, sufficient data after it's happened. Um, this is one of the big issues with tipping points is that they're, they're really, you can't really model them. They're, very, they're a bit like predicting earthquakes. You know, you might know that something's going to happen, but you can't pinpoint when it's going to be. Um, you know it will have a big effect, um, but you can't put that into the model because you just, you know, if you get the timing wrong, then your model is 100% wrong um, until it actually happens. So, yeah, they're not really in the models, um, but we know that they're there lurking, and that's that's really obviously very worrying, particularly for people who, who do a lot of work on tipping points. I mean, they're probably in a constant state of anxiety at this point because there's a few of them predicted to occur around the 1.5 degree of warming level and maybe even before that. Yeah, because that's the reason uh, 1.5 has been the number we've talked about for so long is that uh, we wanted to keep it below that to avoid uh, risking um, uh, triggering some of these tipping points. Um, yeah, well, the more research they do on tipping points, the the earlier they, they mm -hmm. have them happening. So, yeah, it is concerning. Yes, and that risk that somehow um, not only do we have a continued increase in uh, the global temperature, not just of the air, but of the sea, and that there is a significant increase quite quickly, is highlighted uh, in the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report for 2024. The World Economic Forum, obviously, is um, uh, the Davos um, talk shop, uh, which seems to capture the attention of the world in the second or third week of January every year. It's an exclusive ski resort and yeah. a lot of um, rich and famous and great and good get together to solve the world's problems by um, talking into a a set of microphones, and uh, but they also come up with a big report. Um, it coincided to come in with the uh, World Economic Forum Week, Davos Week, and that yeah. is its global risk report. What 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 is that saying about the environmental risks? Yeah, I have to say I don't love everything about the World Economic <laughs> Forum, but this report is certainly really interesting. It's looking at um, global catastrophic risks, so it's. It's looking at things beyond climate change. It's looking at AI and cyber security and, and all sorts of nuclear war, all of the things that present um, catastrophic risk. Um, and they put out a report every year and they look at, um, they have a perception survey as well where they survey um, a lot of people in their network as to uh, um, what, how, what risks they perceive as being most imminent and as being the biggest risks, and they, they pull all that together. And at the moment, they're on the 10-year basis, what are the biggest risks over the next decade? The top four are all environmental risks. Um, and when you look at the near term, like, like the next two years, the second biggest risk is climate change associated, but the first one is misinformation and disinformation. And what they're saying about that is AI propagated misinformation and disinformation is the, the biggest global catastrophic risk over the next two years. And it is likely to um, reduce our ability, human society's ability to deal with all of those other 
risks in the long term. Um, so you know that's so they're all connected in that way, if you like. Um, and on that note, um, very interesting report uh, out from Reuters uh, this week showing that YouTube is making enormous amounts of money uh, off a new breed of climate denial uh, um, websites and distributors. Um, and uh, this is based on uh, some research from the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Um, they've looked at, uh, they've used AI to review transcripts of over 12,000 videos on 96 YouTube channels. And turns out uh, Google is making quite a bit of money out of um, the ads around this misinformation and disinformation. And of course, its algorithms is uh, are designed to um, spread the most uh, engaging and uh, alarming and uh, sensational stuff around. This report estimated that YouTube made $13 million in ads from uh, spreading uh, this stuff. So... Um, you're right, we've got our global information systems almost pre-cooked um, to uh, cook as many of the minds of the planet as possible and sadly cook the planet too. And I um, I wonder, and it's, it's very interesting in your uh, summary this week, uh, whether humans and the way we organise ourselves these days with politics and and our international relations are actually predisposed predetermined genetically programmed if you like to not deal with a a cross-border existential crisis like this yeah there was a really interesting report out of the university of maine um basically saying that um evolution might stop humans from solving climate change so it's it's and it's talking mostly not so much about genetic evolution but cultural evolution which um, humans are particularly good at it helps us to adapt to new environments and changing circumstances much more quickly than genetic evolution would allow so our cultural evolution is very um, very active and and much faster than genetic evolution um, but yeah they're basically saying that our our, our um, that that kind of cultural evolution is not well fit to the sort of um, global environmental problems that we're facing today so we're, we're quite good at dealing with environmental issues at um, at a smaller group level so more like a, a tribal kind of a level um, but we're not very good at um, cooperating between groups or when we when we do we we tend to focus on the wrong sort of problems so we'll, we'll end up um, focusing on things that um, make us compete better with other groups rather mm -hmm. than trying to solve joint problems um, yeah so there's all these things that make it you know Things like climate change and, and biological um, diversity issues, biodiversity, um, make those particularly difficult to for humans to to um, to solve or to address. Um, so we know it's a difficult problem, but this research is saying it's even more difficult than what we might have imagined. Um, and coming out of this, they're basically saying, you know, if any of what they've researched is even close to true, then we need to do a whole lot more research to try and understand how we can um, affect those um, those systems and how we can do things that will actually make a difference and, and, and get scale going. Um, and I, I definitely agree with that. We need a lot more research money going into 
um, understanding the behavioural underpinnings of some of these issues um, and the cultural evolutionary underpinnings and, and, you know, how we can go about addressing those um, rather yeah. than, than spending all of our research money focusing on narrow um, solving narrow technological problems um, that actually don't address what, what the underlying drivers of the issues are. That's right, because um, when you look at the technologies we have now, particularly with solar power generation, uh, uh, batteries, uh, and lots of ways to become more efficient with the use of energy and electricity, we sort of already have the technology to deal with it if we dealt with it in a, in a particular way. But this this business of, in a way, researching the political economy problem of of uh, cross-border cultural and political and economic change fast. Um, it's, it's a difficult one to get your, your head around without it becoming quite political and um, uh, controversial quite quickly. It's, it's a really hard problem. And I, I think, you know, right from the start when we first understood climate change, the science has always said, well, te technically we can address this. We know how. So it's not that we've lacked the technological solutions to doing it. It's that we just haven't done it. And that's the bit that we need to get our heads around. So I'm not anti-technology. I mean, I still think we ought to have technological research and, you know, where hopefully there will be some new technology that we can apply. But we need to get a better understanding of what technologies are actually going to really benefit us and how to scale them up. Um, and that sort of thing, you need to understand the human drivers underneath it. So, you know, it all, all comes back to, you know, getting our heads around what is the, what are the behavioural, um, economic, social, cultural issues that stop us acting at the, at the level that we need to act, at the level that is proportionate to the scale of the problem. Mm. One piece of research that's uh, come out um, has actually come out of New Zealand, um, a paper uh, that was written by a bunch of people led by a conservationist, Joseph Mertz, mm. um, starting to get some traction uh, globally. Can you tell us about this New Zealand-led research paper on the underlying behavioural drivers of ecological overshoot? Yeah, so this is this paper, it, it does basically say that the the real problem we need to address is not just climate change, it's ecological overshoot, so it's much broader than, than climate change. Um, and that we really need to understand the, the behavioural, um, you know, it's human behaviour that has caused these issues and we need to understand, you know, um, and, and it's, you know, looking at things like overconsumption, um, population growth, uh, and, and they also start to talk about the way that marketing has been used to drive that kind of overconsumption and whether we can use it to, to um, undermine um, overconsumption and to, and to um, create some drivers of human behaviour that go in the other direction. So it's, a, it's an interesting proposition and it is starting to get picked up by um, some different um, media outlets overseas. It was featured in, the, in an article by Rachel Donald at, um, in The Guardian. So Rachel Donald does a podcast called Critical Planet, um, which is a good one to listen to as well. Um, so, well, Planet Critical it is. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really thought-provoking paper um, and 
one where I think, yeah, there's a, a lot more work needs to be done in that area beyond that. Mm. So plenty happening in the uh, climate world and plenty to keep an eye on in the weeks and months to come of 2024. Uh, Catherine Dyer, our climate correspondent, um, talking to us from a, a very warm and muggy Northland, uh, where all of that warm sea temperature and air temperature being generated out of the hotspots in the central Pacific are finding their way um, to you. And as we discovered about a year ago, <laughs> year ago, that warming sea temperature, uh, which packs a lot more moisture into the air, which then gets dumped on land as it crosses over, um, will be something to watch. And as we uh, speak, there is a warning of a one-meter rain event in the on the west coast of the South Island um, over the next few days. Uh, One of the those... interesting things in the in the um, temperature stuff that I was looking at um, was that when you separate the the um, global surface temperature increase was one point five, but when you separate separate land versus ocean, the the temperature increase over land hit plus two degrees, um, mm. so it was even higher. So yeah, it really is. You know, starting to have a big impact on on uh, land surface temperatures. Yes. Well, we'll keep an eye on this, and we look forward to um, talking again in a week's time in the weekly uh, climate wrap from Catherine Dyer. Catherine, kakite ano, namihi nui, and um, have a great week. Thank you. Kakite ano.